text for today comes from Isaiah 53. Uh, and, and we're only looking in the first um, three verses today. But as Matt said last week, uh, really chap- chapter 53 of Isaiah um, really starts, the ideas start flowing from uh, Isaiah 52. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. It says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Amen. Uh, so the title of our sermon today is The Unexpected Hero, and I think it's obvious why, uh, why that's kind of the theme of our, of our sermon today as we read through this text and we read, um, in essence, a bio uh, or maybe a short uh, blog about, uh, about Jesus and who he was. Let's see if I can change this thing just a little bit. So, yeah, what we have here in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 is, is, is essentially, it's just that. It, it's kind of a, a short bio of the Messiah. Now, we know that this chapter in Isaiah was written almost 400 years ago, uh, or 400 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, so, when we read this, and we understand from our vantage point that, well, obviously, this is, this is talking about Jesus. Because when, when you read Isaiah 53, and, and read about the one who was... Uh, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the one uh, upon whom uh, there was scorn and shame and uh, we esteemed him not. I mean, everything described in Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. And, and from our vantage point, it's, it's easy for us to see that. Uh, but remember that Isaiah was written around 700 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, and Isaiah is saying these things that, uh, that come to pass and, and come to be exactly who Christ is. Uh, but I want to start today as we think about an unexpected hero. I have a picture, if Zeke would throw it up there, of a guy by the name of Steve Rogers. And if you're not familiar with the story of Steve Rogers, let me tell you a little bit about Steve. Uh, he was a pretty normal guy, grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, and when I say pretty normal, honestly, a better description might be below average. That's uh, who this guy was. He was frail, he was scrawny, he was sickly. Uh, wasn't a whole lot that he was good at. He wasn't an athlete. He wasn't uh, some public figure. He wasn't really anybody uh, of renown, and, and honestly, pretty much a nobody. But uh, but one thing he did want to do is he wanted to serve his country. He wanted to go to war because uh, our country was in the middle of war as he was coming of age, and and so he went to enlist in the army. Actually, tried multiple times uh, under different names, trying to get in, but was rejected every time simply because. Uh, he was sickly. He had a whole history of medical issues and this and that. And basically, the uh, recruiters would look at him and say, no, there's nothing we can do with you. I mean, you're just, uh, you're really, you're nothing that we need, honestly, uh, was the response he got from recruiters. Uh, and so he was not even able to uh, do what he wanted to do and go into the Army because of just his, his stature, his lack of renown, his 
lack of esteem, um, and, this, and this is who he was. But if you're familiar with the Marvel movies or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, you'll know that Steve Rogers eventually goes on to become Captain America, one of the most profound leaders uh, in all of the Marvel Universe and saved the world multiple times. Um, in case you haven't figured out by now, this is not a true story. There was not a real person named Steve Rogers that became Captain America. Uh, but I want us to understand, just, I think this gives us a good picture of, of honestly, uh, of the bio of Jesus that we have here in Isaiah 53. Uh, because as we read Isaiah 53 in the way that he's described as, as honestly, just a pretty normal, average, or even below average guy, uh, very similar to Steve Rogers, who would eventually become Captain America. And we know that this background that we see here in Isaiah 53 is a background of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, the one who would eventually bring out the salvation of the world and the redemption of God's people. And I like where Isaiah starts in the verse part of, of 53. In verse 1, the very first thing he starts with, which is our first point, is the necessity of belief. Point number one, the necessity of belief. He asks this question right off the bat. He said, who has believed what, he's, what he has heard from us. Isaiah is emphasizing the importance of, of belief. Honestly, everything in this prophecy, everything in Isaiah 53, the, the importance of it and the, the magnitude of it hinges on belief. Uh, just like many of the prophets, and, and as the prophets would go and speak to people and tell of the coming Messiah or tell of, of the coming destruction and, and warn the people to repent and to turn from their sin, uh, there was an importance on faith, on belief in what the prophets were saying. I mean, when we think about Nineveh, think about the city of Nineveh, as, as we all know the story of Jonah. Uh, he's swallowed up by a fish because he is told to go to Nineveh and to, uh, to warn them to repent, uh, or surely they would be destroyed. And, and he runs at first, but then he eventually does uh, obey the Lord. He, he goes to Nineveh, and he warns Nineveh. He says, repent of your sin, or the Lord will destroy you. Because you are wicked, and the Lord see, has seen your wickedness and is going to destroy you off the face of the earth. And Nineveh is saved, right? They aren't destroyed. God doesn't destroy Nineveh. Well, the reason God doesn't destroy Nineveh isn't because of Jonah's presence in Nineveh. It isn't because he went to Nineveh and that somehow magically saved Nineveh. Uh, it isn't even because of the words that Jonah spoke in Nineveh. Honestly, none of that saved Nineveh from destruction. What saved Nineveh? And what is the reason for their being spared from, from a certain destruction was that Nineveh heard the words that Jonah said and Nineveh believed, which led to repentance. You see there, we see there the necessity of faith uh, in order to, for any of this to matter, in order for any of this to count, in order for any of this to be effective for us. So that's what the writer here in Isaiah starts with, the necessity of faith. Honestly, if the Jewish leaders had 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 faith and believed what Isaiah was saying here in the chapter 53, uh, perhaps they would have realized that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that was being prophesied here in Isaiah 53. The necessity of faith is still true today. Uh, the necessity of faith is of maximum importance today. In fact, the reformers, Martin Luther and the others, uh, felt that the necessity of faith was so important that they included in their five solas, sola fide. By faith alone is how we are justified. 
Martin Luther even said that this is the hinge upon which our faith stands or falls, is this idea of faith alone, that salvation comes by faith alone. Justification comes by faith alone. So the necessity of faith that's being outlined here in Isaiah 53 in the very beginning is also the starting place for us as believers. It starts with faith and faith alone. The only way that what is prophesied here, the, the transgressions that are, that are placed upon Jesus, the only way that that is effective for us is by faith. Is if we can answer this question, who has believed what he has heard from us, and say, yes, I believe. It's the only way this matters, and that's the place to start. He goes on later in verse 1 uh, and brings up another phrase. He says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that brings us to point number two, the arm of the Lord. I think this is a very interesting phrase, and, and, and very interesting that this phrase is, is used here. Because in Isaiah 53, last part of 52 leading into 53, the entire chapter is about none other than, than the Messiah, than Jesus Christ, and him here on earth. And Jesus Christ being God incarnate, God in human flesh. And this phrase, the arm of the Lord, is used multiple times throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture. And it's always used in reference to the power of God and the might of God. Especially used in the sense of God conquering his enemies, God destroying the enemies of Israel. And as in this context that we see here in Isaiah 53, this phrase is talking about Jesus Christ. So the phrase, the arm of the Lord, the power of God, the might of God, is now being applied to this man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one that has come. And this power of God, in a, in a seemingly frail, much like Steve Rogers sort of person, uh, the same phrase used to describe the way God wiped out the enemies of Israel is now being applied to him, this man. And it might seem, honestly, uh, to, especially to the, to the Jews and the Jewish leaders of the time, uh, that how can this be? How can the power of God, the might of God, the arm of the Lord, now be used to describe this man? Because remember, Jesus spent most of his life not doing the, the miracles and signs and wonders that we read about in the Gospels. He was in his 30s before he started his ministry. I mean, Jesus spent most of his life as just a normal guy growing up in Nazareth. And yet, this is the phrase used to, to describe the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the arm of the Lord, the power of God, the might of God in defeating his enemies. And the reason is, even though he was a seemingly weak, seemingly frail human being, through the death of this one man, God did the most powerful work that has ever been done in all of history, through the death of this one man. Yes, his life may not have seemed very powerful. Yes, he may have uh, not been much to look at or much to esteem. But through this one man, God incarnate, the Lord chose to save the entire world, all who would believe. This is why this phrase is used here. This is why God is applying the arm of the Lord, the same description used for God defeating his enemies and taking it and applying it to Jesus. Because through Jesus, the Lord in his power, in his might, defeated the greatest enemy of all. He defeated sin and death on the cross and through his resurrection. But this is why the Jews rejected Jesus. This isn't the Savior the Jews expected. The Jews expected 
the arm of the Lord. They expected some guy who was going to come and be, and be strong and, and muscular, much like the Captain America rather than Steve Rogers. They expected this guy to come and, and, and save them from their oppression uh, by the Romans. They expected somebody who was going to lead them into political victory and, and fight for them and, and destroy their enemies and, and free them from Rome. This is who the Jews were expecting. When they think the arm of the Lord, they think, yeah, the way God wiped out his enemies, that's what he's, he's going to do for us. Because he's going to send this guy and he's going to come and he's going to defeat our enemies. He's going to free us from Rome. And this is what they expected. They expected somebody who was going to bring political salvation, salvation on the battlefield. And this is why they had such a great contempt for the one who was the true Messiah, which is point number three, the reason for contempt. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was not this big muscular guy with fans all around him and, and the ability to destroy his enemies in one swift stroke uh, with one swing of his hand, freeing them from Rome. No, instead, what do we have? We have the man described here in Isaiah 53, verse 2. It says, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, had no beauty that we should desire him. This is the man that is being described as the arm of the Lord. And this is why the Jewish leaders rejected him as their Messiah. Because surely it couldn't be this man. They hated him for all these reasons, million different reasons. They hated him because of his, his birth, his origin, born in a stable in Bethlehem. Surely our Messiah couldn't be born in a, in a barn with animals and wrapped in old cloths and born to a carpenter? That couldn't be our Messiah. Raised in Nazareth? Oh, come on. Like the Messiah is going to come from Nazareth. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what Nathaniel asked Philip. Whenever Philip said, hey, I found the Messiah, the one spoken of by Moses and the prophets. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet that's where our Messiah comes from. Surely that couldn't be him. The Jews hated him because of the life he lived. I mean, Jesus had a, a group of disciples around him, these men, that, I mean, when you look at it, honestly, were kind of a pretty ragtag group of misfits, really. I mean, people who were considered uh, nobody or, or even enemies of the Jews, like tax collectors. And these are the people that, that Jesus hung around with, hung out with. That couldn't be the Messiah, hanging out with these guys, these nobodies. Look who he surrounded himself with. They hated him because of his appearance. As we see here in 53, he really had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. This isn't the guy that's come to save us. Look at him. That's like when the doctor saw Steve Rogers and said, God, you're not going to do anything for us. Look at this guy. Or when the general saw him and said, this guy's so skinny, he's not going to do anything. He's, not, he's supposed to be our hero. Yeah, right. That's what the Jews said. That's what the Jews thought when they looked at him. They hated him. What was the Jewish expectation of what a leader should look like? I think we get at least some sort of image from uh, King Saul, the very first king that, that the Jews ever had in, in the Old Testament. The Bible describes him as being handsome, strong, tall, stood ahead above everyone else. They thought, oh, yeah, look at this guy. He's our leader. This guy can lead us. Big guy, muscular guy. I mean, we know how that turned out. He ended up going crazy, trying to kill the Lord's anointed, David. 
Not a recipe for success, for sure. Certainly not according to God's standards. But yet the Jews hated him for that. Look at him. This guy can't be a leader. They hated the way he died. They hated him all the way up until the end and shamed him and had such disdain and scorn for this man. Hang on a cross. Hanged on a cross. Can you imagine that that guy, humiliated, naked on a cross, that's supposed to be our Savior? Come on. No way. They rejected him. The phrase, we esteemed him not, that we see in verse 3, literally means that we counted him as nothing. It means they considered him lower than a slave or a criminal. We considered him nothing. That's why they asked for Barabbas instead of him. They would have rather had a murderer and an insurrector than, than Jesus Christ, than this man. They considered him less than a murderer or a slave. That's why in Acts chapter 3, while addressing the Jews that were there, Peter says this in Acts chapter 3, verse 13 and 15. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. What an indictment that is that Peter gives to the Jews there. He says, you delivered him over. You denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. What an indictment that Peter gives to the Jewish people. But lest we begin to think that the, that the Jews in this story are just the lowest of the low and the scum of the earth and surely we're better than they are. We keep reading in verse 17 and 18 in Acts chapter 3. As Peter goes on to say this, And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then right after that, Peter extends salvation to these people and says, now repent of your sin and find forgiveness and freedom in the one that you crucified. What does Peter say here? He said, I know you acted in ignorance. In other words, you were lost. You were blinded by your sin. And he says, what God foretold by the mouth of his prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He said, yes, what you did was wrong, but what you did God used to fulfill his prophecy, what he was going to do. In other words, when we ask the question, who's responsible for crucifying Jesus? Yes, the Jews were the ones that God used to carry out his plan of redemption and the death of his son. But in reality, when we ask the question, who's responsible for crucifying Christ? The answer is we are. I'm responsible for crucifying Christ. We're the reason it was necessary that God had to die. It was because of our rebellion. It was because of our sin. The cross that Jesus was crucified on, that was my cross. I'm the guilty one, not him. And so what Peter is saying to them is that what God did through you, he did because of our sin, and he did because it was his will, and he chose to do it. 
So don't think for a moment as we read this story and read of, of how he was despised and rejected by the Jews and how they hated him and scorned him. Don't think for a minute that the Jews are solely responsible for the death of Christ. We're the ones to blame. Me and you. That was our cross. That was our sin. That was the reason he had to die. Finally, fourth point. Man of sorrows. That's who Jesus was. In verse 3 of chapter 53, it says this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's a great comfort in knowing that the story doesn't end with Jesus' death on the cross. We know that Jesus died on the cross, yes. Uh, and He suffered shame and agony and separation from his father. But we also know that that wasn't the end of the story. He rose again from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, victorious over death. And honestly, the story doesn't even stop there. Because when Jesus rose again, and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, his role now is of great importance to us. After completing his work here on earth, Jesus didn't just kick back in his easy chair and say, well, my work is done, I did it, completed the job, now I'm just going to relax, enjoy the rest of eternity, people worshiping me. That's not what he did. Jesus is actively, right now, actively working on behalf of his people, on behalf of me and you. The book of Hebrews describes Jesus as the great high priest. According to Jewish tradition, Jewish law, the high priest was the one selected to go into the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God was, and to intercede for the sins of the people, to make sacrifices on behalf of the people, to, to make intercession for them, to be the mediator between the people and God, the go-between. And this was a man selected from the people. He was a priest, but he was of the people. He wasn't... Uh, somebody who the Lord sent down from heaven to act as the priest, the mediator. No, he was of the people. Actually, Zechariah and Luke, as we've been working our way through Luke, Zechariah, who was just a man, was acting in the role of the, of the high priest and making offering in the Holy of Holies for the people of Israel when uh, the angel of the Lord came to him and spoke to him. That's the role of Jesus now. This is why we don't have priests anymore. We don't have priests anymore because... Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the one interceding for us. Jesus intercedes on behalf of believers. This is why verse 3 is so important and so beautiful to us. Because Jesus knew what it, what it means. He knows what it means to experience grief. He knows what it means to feel sorrow. We see this even on the cross as Jesus died. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sorrow and the anguish that Jesus felt was real. He understands it. He gets it. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 11, the writer tells us this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why it's so important when we read here in, in verse 3 that Jesus was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
Jesus is not a high priest that doesn't understand what we're going through. He's not one that hasn't experienced the, the, the life of the people, one who knows what it's like to suffer. No, he can relate in every way. And it says, in every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Just the other day, just this past week, I was having a conversation with a girl on campus, a girl who has a lot of questions about the faith, a lot of questions about Christianity, what it means, a lot of bad experiences with Christians, with the church. And she made this statement to me. She said, you know what? I think the problem is that you can never understand what I'm going through. You've never been an orphan like I have. You don't have any disabilities like I have, because she does. She struggles, suffers from, from disabilities. Um, she says, you, you don't even know the kinds of things I've experienced. You can't even relate to me. You don't know where I'm coming from, and that's the problem. And my response to her was, you know what? That's fair. You're right. I don't. I've never been an orphan. I've never experienced a disability like that. I've never been adopted and, and had the experiences that she's had. But what I told her was, the, the amazing thing is, the God that came to save you, that died on the cross, and now is willing to fight for you, he has. He does know exactly what you're going through. He is able to sympathize with you in your weakness and in your struggle. What a comfort that is to us. To know that Jesus Christ isn't some far off Man who doesn't understand what it's like to suffer, doesn't understand what it's like to have money problems, or doesn't understand what it's like to, to have relationship problems. Jesus understands all of that. How dare we stand in a place where we think that God doesn't understand us? Can we read what he went through? His own father. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think there's a single person in, that, in this room that knows what that feels like. Surely he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What good news that is for us. As we read these verses in Isaiah 53, these first three verses, this, this bio of who Jesus was, I think it's important that we understand the, the reality, the magnitude of who we're reading about. This is God in human flesh. It's the creator of the universe that's being described here as having no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is the king of kings who has no beauty that we should desire him. God did this for us. God, the same ones who, as the verse that the children are learning, the angels were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And yet this is how that same God is being described now. No beauty that we should desire him. No form that we should look at him. How he humbled himself. Took on the form of man. Gave up his position in order to come and save us. That's what it means when Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, 7 and 8, when he says, He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. This is our high priest. This is our God. This is what he's done for us. The moment we read this passage and forget that that's the same God, 
is the moment we fail to understand what exactly he's done for us. He did all of this willingly. He gave it up. Jesus gave up his standing, his position at the right hand of God. He did it for us. What a picture of love this is for us, that, that he chose to come down to earth as a, an unassuming, pretty subpar uh, with regards to appearance, man, to suffer rejection, sorrow, and grief, to lay down his life on the chopping block for us. There's a graphic that uh, I don't have on the screen, but we, we almost used for our theme of Isaiah 53, and it's a graphic of a, of a sheep, a ram, that is laying out ready to be sacrificed. And this lamb is just white as snow, beautiful, and it has its feet tied together so that it can't run away, can't get away. And that's the picture of our Savior as a, a lamb who has laid himself on the altar, ready to be sacrificed, ready to be killed for our sake. But you know what the difference is between Jesus Christ and the picture of that lamb? Is that don't, those ropes aren't necessary. Jesus laid his life down for us willingly. He suffered all of this willingly. For us, there were no ropes necessary. He wasn't under compulsion other than his own will and his love for us, desire to save us. He didn't come like Captain America in a blaze of glory, big muscles, crowds all around him shouting his name. He was despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Yet, this was truly the arm of the Lord that he used to defeat sin and death. The same way the arm of the Lord defeated the enemies for the Israelites. He's now defeated the greatest enemy of all. Now we have access to that God. That same God is fighting for us still today. May we praise him for that. Be thankful. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a beautiful chapter this is. God, I've stood up here for some time now and, and talked. And, and Lord, I haven't even done it justice. Not even these three verses. God, I pray that what this will do for us, Lord, is to spark within us a desire to seek you out even more. A desire to understand the God that would do this for us. He would come and suffer all this to take on a frail human form that you did, being humiliated, despised, shamed on a cross, so that we might be glorified and lifted up with you. Lord, how humbling that is, and how little we deserve it. God, I praise you and thank you, and ask that today, the reality of this, the reality of what you've done for us, the lamb come to the slaughter, as the song says, that would lead us to worship you all the more, for you are worthy. I pray this in Jesus' name.